0: Chapter Fourteen of Tarzan and the Ant Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. Tarzan and the Ant Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Fourteen The Alali women, fifty strong, sallied forth into the forest to chastise their recalcitrant males they carried their heavy bludgeons and many-feathered pebbles, but most formidable of all was their terrific rage. Never in the memory of one of them had man dared question their authority. Never had he presumed to show aught but fear of them. But now, instead of slinking away at their approach, he had dared defy them, to attack them, to slay them. But such a condition was too preposterous, too unnatural to exist nor would it exist much longer. Had they had speech, they would have said that, and a number of other things. It was looking black for the men. The women were in an ugly mood. But what else could be expected of women, who were denied the power of speech? And in this temper they came upon the men in a large clearing where the renegades had built a fire, and were cooking the flesh of a number of antelope. Never had the women seen their men so sleek and trim. Always before they had appeared skinny to the verge of cadaverousness, for in the past they had never fared so well as since the day that Tarzan of the Apes had given weapons to the son of the first woman. Where before they had spent their lives fleeing in terror from the terrible women, with scarce time to hunt for decent food, now they had leisure and peace of mind, and their weapons brought them flesh that otherwise they might not have tasted once in a year from caterpillars and grub-worms they had graduated to an almost steady diet of antelope-meat. But the women gave very little heed at the moment to the physical appearance of the men. They had found them. That was enough. They were creeping nearer when one of the men looked up and discovered them, and so insistent are the demands of habit that he forgot his new-found independence, and leaping to his feet bolted for the trees. The others, scarce waiting to know the cause of his precipitancy, followed close upon his heels. The women raced across the clearing as the men disappeared among the trees upon the opposite side. The former knew what the men would do. Once in the forest they would stop behind the nearest trees and look back to see if their pursuers were coming in their direction. It was this silly habit of the males that permitted their being easily caught by the less agile females. But all the men had not disappeared. One had taken a few steps in the mad race for safety, and had then halted and wheeled about, facing the oncoming women. He was the son of the first woman, and to him Tarzan had imparted something more than knowledge of new weapons, for from the lord of the jungle, whom he worshipped with dog-like devotion, he had acquired the first rudiments of courage. And so it now happened that when his more timorous fellows paused behind the trees and looked back, they saw this one, standing alone, facing the charge of fifty infuriated shees. They saw him fit arrow to bow, and the women saw too, but they did not understand, not immediately. And then the bowstring twanged, and the foremost woman collapsed with an arrow in her heart. But the others did not pause, because the thing had been done so quickly, that the full purport of it had not as yet penetrated their thick skulls. The son of the first woman fitted a second arrow and sped it. Another woman fell, rolling over and over, and now the others hesitated, hesitated and were lost, for that momentary pause gave courage to the other men peering from behind the trees. If one of their number could face fifty women and bring them to halt, what might not eleven men accomplish? They rushed forth then with spears and arrows just as the women renewed their assault. The feathered pebbles flew thick and fast but faster and more accurately flew the feathered arrows of the men. The leading women rushed courageously forward to close quarters, where they might use their bludgeons and lay hold of the men with their mighty hands. But they learned then that spears were more formidable weapons than bludgeons, with the result that those who did not fall wounded turned and fled. It was then that the son of the first woman revealed possession of a spark of generalship that decided the issue for that day, and perhaps for all time his action was epical, in the existence of the Zertalacolos. Instead of being satisfied with repulsing the women, instead of resting upon laurels gloriously won, he turned the tables upon the hereditary foe, and charged the women, signaling his fellows to accompany him. And when they saw the women running from them, so enthused were they by this reversal of a custom ages old, they leaped swiftly in pursuit. They thought that the son of the first woman intended that they should slay all of the enemy, And so they were surprised when they saw him overhaul a comely young female, and, seizing her by the hair, disarm her. So remarkable did it seem to them that one of their number, having a woman in his power, did not immediately slay her, they were constrained to pause and gather around him, asking questions in their strange sign language. Why do you hold her? Why do you not kill her? Are you not afraid that she will kill you? were some of the many that were launched at him. I am going to keep her, replied the son of the first woman. I do not like to cook. She shall cook for me. If she refuses, I shall stick her with this. And he made a jab toward the young woman's ribs with his spear, a gesture that caused her to cower and drop fearfully upon one knee. The men jumped up and down in excitement, as the value of this plan and the evident terror of the woman for the man sank into their dull souls. Where are the women? they signed to one another but the women had disappeared. One of the men started off in the direction they had gone. I go, he signalled, I come back with a woman of my own to cook for me. In a mad rush the others followed him, leaving the son of the first woman, alone with his she. He turned upon her. You will cook for me? he demanded. To his signs she but returned a sullen, snarling visage. The son of the first woman raised his spear and with the heavy shaft struck the girl upon the head, knocking her down, and he stood over her, himself snarling and scowling, menacing her with further punishment, while she cowered where she had fallen. He kicked her in the side. "'Get up!' he commanded. Slowly she crawled to her knees and, embracing his legs, gazed up into his face with an expression of dog-like adulation and devotion. "'You will cook for me?' he demanded again. "'Forever,' she replied, in the sign language of their people. Tarzan had remained but a short time in the little room adjoining that in which Zoanthrohago had received Elkomahago, when he was summoned to appear before them alone, and as he entered the room his master motioned him to approach the desk behind which the two men sat. There was no other person in the room, even the warriors having been dismissed.' You are quite positive that he understands nothing of our language? demanded the king. He has not spoken a word since he was captured, replied Zoanthrohago. We had supposed him some new form of Zertalacolol, until it was discovered that he possessed a language through which he was able to communicate with the other Trohanadamacusian slave. It is perfectly safe to speak freely before him, all wise. Mohago cast a quick, suspicious glance at his companion he would have preferred that Zoanthrohago, of all men, address him as all-glorious. It was less definite in its implication. He might deceive others, even himself, as to his wisdom, but he was perfectly aware that he could not fool Zoanthrohago. "'We have never discussed fully,' said the king, "'the details of this experiment. It was for this purpose that I came to the laboratory today. Now that we have the subject here, let us go into the matter fully, and determine what next step we should take.' yes all-wise replied zoanthrohago call me thagosto snapped elcomohago yes thagosto said the prince using the menunian word for chief royal or king as elcomohago had commanded let us discuss the matter by all means it represents possibilities of great importance to your throne he knew that what Elcomohago meant by discussing the matter, consisted only in receiving from Zoanthrohago a detailed explanation of how he had reduced the stature of the slave Zuanthral to one quarter its original proportions. But he proposed, if possible, to obtain value received for the information, which he knew the king would use for his own aggrandizement, giving Zoanthrohago no credit whatever for his discoveries, or all the long moons he had devoted to accomplishing this marvelous scientific miracle. Before we enter into this discussion, O Thagosto, he said, I beg that you will grant me one boon, which I have long desired, and have hitherto hesitated to request, knowing that I did not deserve the recognition I crave for my poor talents and my mean service to thy illustrious and justly renowned rule. What boon do you wish? demanded Elcomohago crustily. At heart he feared this wisest of men, and, like the coward that he was, with him to fear was to hate. If he could have destroyed Zoanthrohago he would gladly have done so, but he could not afford to do this, since from this greatest of walmocks came whatever show of scientific ability the king could make, as well as all the many notable inventions for the safeguarding of the royal person. I would sit at the royal council, said Zoanthrohago simply. The king fidgeted. Of all the nobles of Veltopismachus. Here was the very last he would wish to see numbered among the royal councillors, whom he had chosen with a special reference to the obtuseness of their minds. "'There are no vacancies,' he said at last. "'The ruler of all men might easily make a vacancy,' suggested Zoanthrohago, or create a new post, assistant chief of chiefs, for example, so that when Gofaloso was absent there would be one to take his place. Otherwise I should not have to attend upon your council meetings, but devote my time to the perfection of our discoveries and inventions here was a way out and elcomohago seized it he had no objection to zoanthrohago being a royal counsellor and thus escaping the burdensome income tax which the makers of the tax had been careful to see proved no burden to themselves and he knew that probably that was the only reason that zoanthrohago wished to be a counsellor No, the king had no objection to the appointment, provided it could be arranged that the new minister was present at no council-meetings, for even Elcomohago would have shrunk a bit from claiming as his own all the great discoveries of Zoanthrohago, had Zoanthrohago been present. "'Very well,' said the king. "'You shall be appointed this very day, and when I want you at the council-meetings I will send for you.' Zoanthrohago bowed. "'And now,' he said, "'to the discussion of our experiments,' which we hope will reveal a method for increasing the stature of our warriors when they go forth to battle with our enemies, and reducing them to normal size once more when they return. "'I hate the mention of battles,' cried the king with a shudder. "'But we must be prepared to win them when they are forced upon us,' suggested Zoanthrohago. "'I suppose so,' assented the king but once we perfect this method of ours we shall need but a few warriors and the rest may be turned to peaceful and useful occupations however go on with the discussion zoanthrohago concealed a smile and rising walked around the end of the table and stopped beside the ape-man here he said placing a finger at the base of tarzan's skull there lies as you know a small oval reddish-gray body containing a liquid which influences the growth of tissues and organs It long ago occurred to me that interference with the normal functioning of this gland would alter the growth of the subject to which it belonged. I experimented with small rodents, and achieved remarkable results, but the thing I wished to accomplish, the increase of man's stature, I have been unable to achieve. I have tried many methods, and some day I shall discover the right one. I think I am on the right track, and that it is merely now a matter of experimentation." You know that stroking your face lightly with a smooth bit of stone produces a pleasurable sensation. Apply that same stone to the same face in the same manner, but with greatly increased force, and you produce a diametrically opposite sensation. Rub the stone slowly across the face and back again many times, and then repeat the same motion rapidly for the same number of times, and you will discover that the results are quite different. I am that close to a solution, I have the correct method, but not quite, as yet, the correct application. I can reduce creatures in size, but I cannot enlarge them. And although I can reduce them with great ease, I cannot determine the period, or endurance, of their reduction. In some cases, subjects have not regained their normal size under thirty-nine moons, and in others, they have done so in as short a period as three moons. There have been cases where normal stature was regained gradually, during a period of seven suns and others where the subject passed suddenly from a reduced size to normal size in less than a hundred heartbeats, this latter phenomenon being always accompanied by fainting and unconsciousness when it occurred during waking hours. Of course, commented Elcomohago, now let us see. I believe the thing is simpler than you imagine. You say that to reduce the size of this subject you struck him with a rock upon the base of the skull, therefore to enlarge his size the most natural and scientific thing to do would be to strike him a similar blow upon the forehead fetch the rock and we will prove the correctness of my theory for a moment zoanthrohago was at a loss as to how best to circumvent the stupid intention of the king without humiliating his pride and arousing his resentment but the courtiers of elcomohago were accustomed to think quickly in similar emergencies and zoanthrohago speedily found an avenue of escape from his dilemma your sagacity is the pride of your people thagosto he said and your brilliant hyperbole the despair of your courtiers in a clever figure of speech you suggest the way to achievement by reversing the manner in which we reduce the stature of zuanthra we should be able to increase it but alas i have tried this and failed but wait let us repeat the experiment precisely as it was originally carried out and then by reversing it we shall perhaps be enabled to determine why i have failed in the past He stepped quickly across the room to one of a series of large cupboards that lined the wall, and, opening the door of it, revealed a cage in which were a number of rodents. Selecting one of these, he returned to the table where, with wooden pegs and bits of cord, he fastened the rodent securely to a smooth board, its legs spread out and its body flattened, the underside of the lower jaw resting firmly upon a small metal plate set flush with the surface of the board. He then brought forth a small wooden box and a large metal disc. The latter mounted vertically between supports that permitted it to be revolved rapidly by means of a hand crank. Mounted rigidly upon the same axis as the revolving disc was another which remained stationary. The latter disc appeared to have been constructed of seven segments, each of a different material from all the others, and from each of these segments a pad, or brush, protruded sufficiently to press lightly against the revolving disc. To the reverse side of each of the seven segments of the stationary disc, a wire was attached and these wires zoanthrohago now connected to seven posts projecting from the upper surface of the wooden box. A single wire attached to a post upon the side of the box had at its other extremity a small curved metal plate attached to the inside of a leather collar. This collar zoanthrohago adjusted about the neck of the rodent, so that the metal plate came in contact with its skin at the base of the skull, and as close to the hypothesis gland as possible. He then turned his attention once more to the wooden box, upon the top of which, in addition to the seven binding posts, was a circular instrument consisting of a dial, about the periphery of which were a series of hieroglyphics. From the center of this dial projected seven tubular concentric shafts, each of which supported a needle, which was shaped or painted in some distinguishing manner while beneath the dial seven small metal discs were set in the cover of the box, so that they lay in the arc of a circle from the center of which a revolving metal shaft was so arranged that its free end might be moved to any one of the seven metal discs, at the will of the operator. The connections having all been made, Zoanthrohago moved the free end of the shaft from one of the metal discs to another, keeping his eyes at all times intently upon the dial, the seven needles of which moved variously as he shifted the shaft from point to point elcomohago was an intent if somewhat bewildered observer and the slave zoanthral unobserved had moved nearer the table that he might better watch this experiment which might mean so much to him zoanthrohago continued to manipulate the revolving shaft and the needles moved hither and thither from one series of hieroglyphics to another until at last the walmak appeared satisfied it is not always easy he said to attune the instrument to the frequency of the organ upon which we are working from all matter, and even from such incorporeal a thing as thought, there emanate identical particles, so infinitesimal as to be scarce noted by the most delicate of my instruments. These particles constitute the basic structure of all things, whether animate or inanimate, corporeal or incorporeal. The frequency, quantity, and rhythm of the emanations determine the nature of the substance. Having located upon this dial the coefficient of the gland under discussion, it now becomes necessary, in order to so interfere with its proper functioning, that the growth of the creature involved will not only be stopped but actually reversed, that we decrease the frequency, increase the quantity, and compound the rhythm of these emanations. This I shall now proceed to do. And he forthwith manipulated several small buttons upon one side of the box, and grasping the crank-handle of the free disk, revolved it rapidly. The result was instantaneous and startling. Before their eyes Elcomohago the king and Zuanthral the slave saw the rodent shrink rapidly in size, while retaining its proportions unchanged. Tarzan, who had followed every move and every word of the Walmak, leaned far over that he might impress indelibly upon his memory the position of the seven needles. Elcomohago glanced up and discovered his interest. "'We do not need this fellow now,' he said addressing zoanthrohago have him sent away yes d'agosto replied zoanthrohago summoning a warrior whom he directed to remove tarzan and Komodo florence all to a chamber where they could be secured until their presence was again required end of chapter fourteen recording by matthew reese cordova illinois